I guess you, well, you're back out on the road now and um, you've loaded up the old Vauxhall Wyvern, have you? <laughs> oh, my goodness, my Vauxhall Wyvern. I bought that for £200 back in yeah. 1977, I think. And it was the yeah. car that I drove down from Glasgow to London when I moved Jeez. to London. Jeez. I loved that car. I loved it. I mean, I had to Google it because I never heard of it, right? <laughs> and it's, it's a beast. It was based on kind of American cars yeah. of the 50s. Great big chrome bumper along the front, um, a bench seat in the front, and a column gear change. So you could sit there with, you know, your girl and your arm around yeah, the girl yeah. on this bench seat as you're driving along with a big oh, yeah. white Bakelite wheel. And it was fantastic. <laughs> I remember my dad looking at it going, no, you're not going to buy that thing, are you? Yeah. I went, £200? Yeah, thanks very much. And I drove that car for you know three or four years, I think, when I was in London. It was great. I mean, I must have done about, what, four to the gallon? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> a huge car, a very small engine. Yeah. It was, it, it, the great thing about it was that the windscreen wipers ran off the engine. So oh, yeah. it rained really heavily, you had to drive fast. Because yeah. as you drove slow, the windscreen wipers got slower. Oh, I, it was just ridiculous. I remember my brother had one of them A30s and they had them flappy paddle indicators, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, have... the semaphore thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, this, this had semaphores. Yeah, it was great. Well, anyway, um, as I said, uh, thanks for coming on, mate. Um, as you know, you come to Cardiff. Um, you come to Cardiff uh, on the 8th of May, down in the tram shed on your Voice and Visions tour, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I just feel back out on the road again. You know what? It's how I felt when it stopped was was probably more to the point. You yeah. know, it's something that I'd done all my life. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, it just ground to halt, and there was nothing in the diary, and we hadn't completed the previous tour, the nineteen eighty tour, because uh, that that got stopped in Australia. Oh yeah. When yeah. we were down there, um, and then you think, you know, in the back of your mind, you think maybe it's just not going to come back again. I don't know. I mean, this tour that we're doing, this Voice and Visions tour, yeah. um, is has uh, been postponed twice. And that's oh, just yeah, yeah, horrendous, yeah. not just for the audience, but for the, uh, uh, and the artists, but the crew and the trucking guys and the, you yeah. know, the crew, the tour bus people and the lighting guys and all of that stuff. At a time when they really needed the money uh, for the livelihood, it just kept disappearing. So I'm ecstatic that it's actually out and coming, you know, coming yeah. out and, and yeah. back out again. It's fabulous. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, it started back. I mean, you've done four dates back in September, didn't you, I think? And then, um, That's because yeah. uh, every time a tour, it takes about a year to put a tour together to uh, to book all the dates and make it kind of semi coherent. Yeah, uh, and of course, then it's postponed. And then you have to, the poor agent has to go and do it again for yeah, another year. Yeah. But it's not just ours that's postponed. Yeah. Everybody's is postponed yeah. at the same time. So we're all fighting for the same venues at the same time, of the same course. places. And yeah. then that's postponed again. But some of the shows couldn't be postponed. They were towards the end of last year. Yeah. So we put the entire thing together, the whole show, the whole stage set, and went out and did those four shows, then took it into Europe. Now we're coming back with the entire thing, yeah. uh, all polished and ready to go. Uh, I, you know, in, in April and May, so it's great. I mean, I've been looking at, I mean, looking at the dates you've had. Then. I mean, it's a massive tour. I mean, the dates are awful close together. I mean, I mean, you you can't have much time to yourself with, with this tour going on. It's huge. 
Well, you know what? It, I think when you're in tour mode, it's fine. I mean, the, 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 I think the joy of doing a tour like this, uh, this time round is, because uh, we're, we're all getting slightly older these days, um, <laughs> is that we're doing it in a tour bus, which means that you're travelling overnight yeah. uh, and you spend an entire day uh, where you're going to be playing. And that is very unusual. Normally you're driving, you're travelling mm. from, from city to city, uh, venue to venue, you know, on the day you're doing the show. Yeah. So the joy of this is you finish your show and you go and get showered and you come off and you hang out with the band and the tour bus and then you just go to your little bed and close the curtains and put your headphones on and away you go Thank you, and old you days. wake up somewhere else it's great it's, <laughs> that's luxury to me <laughs> <laughs> so it's like the old days mate I bet oh uh, no the old days the old days you were driving the van <laughs> no, <what are> you <laughs> forget, forget that <laughs> you go, hey tell you what you go get all these equipment and I'll wave in is it <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen I, I managed to get all my equipment in the Wyvern when I moved from Glasgow <laughs> to London that's I'll tell you that yeah I bet yeah um, I tell you what the other thing is look you're, you're showcasing um, two of the probably the I, well, I don't for me personally being a Ultra Vox fan as well back in the 80s as a DJing back then as well I mean they, they were two different albums completely I thought I mean the Raising Eden when I came out I remember and you know you, you had you just come off the back of Ultra Vox uh, sorry Vienna I mean, uh, that was a massive success, as we know. Um, and then all of a sudden, um, from what I can gather, that um, you guys just sat down and thought, well, we all do something completely different now. We, we, I mean, by the sounds of it, because you, you didn't actually have any material before you went in the studio before that, did you? No, we didn't. You know that I think it's it's a thing in the industry called the the difficult second album. <laughs> yeah. Because most artists, you know, have plenty of time to write the first record, and then if the first album is hopefully successful enough, uh, they go out and they tour that record. But the record la label usually want another album straight away, yeah. and they want it as good as the first one, if not better. But there's no time to write the material. Of so it wasn't so. that that drove it. It was the fact that Vienna the album had given us the wherewithal to go on an experiment. Uh, so we went off to Connie Plank's studio in the middle of Germany with yeah. absolutely no songs and created the entire Rage and Eden album in the studio there over a three-month period. Um, and we, we achieved a, exactly the album that we wanted to achieve, which is which is great. It was We were very lucky to be in that position uh, that allowed us to do that. I mean, it was completely different. Well, I say completely different, but, I mean, it was more of an edge to um, Rage and Eden. I mean, Connie Plank, I mean, he was a legend at the time, wasn't he? With, um, he was a kind of a pioneer with the electronic music coming out because he'd, he'd worked with, um, what was it, Kraftwerk and people like that, didn't he? I mean, oh, so, absolutely! Yeah. yeah, he was the he was the guy. If you if you were interested in technology, and and making music with technology and traditional rock instruments, he was the guy to go to. Uh, of course, once that album uh, came out, and it was a dark album, it yeah. was quite a dark subject matter, and it was it really reflected uh, the situation we'd put ourselves in. But it was weirdly still commercially successful. It was, yeah. Uh, so, so we again, once we had done that album, everyone expected us to do another album similar. Yeah. And we didn't. We, we chose to go off and work with uh, the brilliant George Martin. I know, uh, yeah. And do the exact opposite of what we'd just done. 
I mean, he went off, as you said, kind of a complete tangent to quartet. I mean, um, as, as I said, he was more edgier. And I mean, uh, this time, I think, um, from what I've, as I said, my homework, I mean, um, he was, George Martin was more of a hands-on guy uh, rather than Connie Plank. Because you you guys sat down, didn't you, with Rage and Eden and come up with all the stuff, all your band, you know, um, equally together. Um, and this time, when he went into the studio, George Martin had more of a hands-on. Well, George was more of an old school producer when you think of it yeah you know he he was he was the guy that you'd sit around the piano all those photographs you saw the Beatles they're always sitting around the piano and discussing the arrangements and working things out and George was very much that and Ultravox weren't very good at listening to other people <laughs> you know with a very yeah. a very defined idea of what we wanted to achieve yeah so if you're going to listen to someone who might make you think twice about what you're doing George Martin is one of the only people on the planet who could have done that. Yeah. So uh, so it was the right choice for us. Whereas Connie Plank, who had done Vienna and Rage in Eden, was very much an engineer. He, yeah. he had built little boxes that he'd put your vocals through and make them do distorting and funny things. He was much more a technician than uh, anything to do with the arrangement of the music. Whereas Connie was, uh, mm. uh, uh, George was very much sit down. And I yeah. think, ch chaps, I think you've, said what you need to say at the end of this song. Let's cut it down a bit. And you go, OK, George, that's fine. You know, you just don't say no <laughs> you're to him, good, you're you're good. <laughs> <laughs> No, not having that. Um, the, um, the thing is, as I said, I don't like, you know, I keep labouring the point, but when you go into a studio, I'm looking at the commercial aspect of it, I guess. And the singles make albums or albums make singles you know what it's a funny thing i think people think that you are responsible for the success or yeah. failure of a, of a of a record when you know when you release something a piece of music and really the artist's job stops when you've actually completed the piece of music then you have to as you well know it gets handed across to the machine yeah. you know the yeah. people who who get out there and get it to radio stations and and create the adverts for the then music papers or do the posters or what they do all of that PR stuff um, and it's at that point it's kind of letting your baby go you've got to you've got to trust that someone else knows what they're doing and will do it well uh, and sometimes that that works and it works incredibly well. You know, pieces of music that you thought were just interesting pieces of music all of a sudden become hit singles. And yeah, that's not because yeah. of what anything we've done. No. All we've done is write a piece of music. It's for someone else to decide that that is, you know, palatable to an audience. You know, the audience like it. You can't make people listen to what you do. No. All you can do is go through the, the process. Um, so, yes, you're quite right. Sometimes you, you release things that, that you think are the best things you've done, but radio or the audience yeah. don't quite agree, and that's no, just the that, way it is. That must be really frustrating as well, I guess, for you. Uh, well, it's, it's understandable. Yeah. You know, it's not everything you do is going to appeal to the same people who liked what you'd done previously. Yeah, especially yeah. if you're constantly trying to push borders like we were doing. You know, sometimes you might have, uh, you know, it it might have turned people off you. You know, it's just yes. the way it is. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. you've got to stick to your guns, otherwise. The record labels would have had, you know, the VN album part two, the VN album part three, the VN you album couldn't. part four, and that's <laughs> yeah. no good to us at all. And emptying remixes, I guess, as well. I mean, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah, all of that. <laughs> um, right, okay, I think, I don't think we've got much more time, unfortunately. I mean, when I was doing this, I could have asked so many questions, because, as I said, we've done so much stuff over the years, you know, I didn't know for a fact, I mean, you played with Thin Lizzy, and of course, uh, you had, you know, you were slick, the rich kids, and of 
course, Visage, which was another favourite band of mine. And uh, as I said, you know, your own stuff as well. I mean, there's so, such well, such a diverse bunch of music, I guess. And I mean, obviously, um, you're a really talented guy, obviously. Well, Otherwise, uh, I, I think it's one of those things that if you if you really love and passionate about what you're doing yeah. and someone gives you the keys to the toy box, which yeah. is what I got when I joined Ultravox, yeah. um, you take it as far as you can take it. So yeah. I was just, I worked all the time, you know, Visage, yeah. you know, local, you know, Steve Strange, Steve Harrington, oh, right. uh, you know, local Welsh boys, so all of ah, that yeah, stuff. yeah, of course. Being able to do all of that is yeah. just an absolute, you know, godsend, yeah, an absolute yeah, pleasure. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, as as yeah, you know, as I said, I you know I'm gonna be. I was a big fan. I still am. It. Um, wish I could come to the tram shed where I'm broke. <laughs> but no, I, I think I'll, uh, I. I think a stick is still left. Um, so uh, there, there you go. Have no a good excuse. one. <laughs> have a good one. Uh, I tell you what, that'd be great. Though. Just before we go, two seconds. Well, I can't. I can't let you go without mentioning Band Aid. Um, how would you look back on the whole thing, just in general, Midge? Uh, well, I'm still a Band-Aid trustee, as both yeah. Bob and I, and and all the other trustees who came on board when the record was made, um, were still there 37, 38 years later, yeah. and still, still, uh, you know, the record still generates funds every time that song is yeah. played on the radio, yeah. or goes on a compilation album or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, Bob and I gave the songwriting royalties to to the Band-Aid Trust. Yes. So even long after we are gone, that will continue generating yeah. uh, funds for for the cause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It, you look back and it was just a a magic moment in history you know it's yeah. it was great that that people resonated with that piece of music and it led to so many so many other great things nothing to do with band-aid but no you know no. it opened opened up the world to, to a whole slew of different uh, different charity events and i mean think that just before we go just, i mean people still don't realize you can still donate um to, to the band-aid cause as you said yeah it's still running it is still running and of course there's the there's a live aid uh, YouTube channel, which is now yeah. over a, a, a billion viewers. Well, you can actually go on there for free, and every time, uh, every time you you watch a performance from yeah. Queen or you know Bowie or whoever yeah. uh, who was at Live Aid, it generates money for the cause uh, via yeah. via YouTube. So that it, it's there, it's still doing its job, just in slightly different ways. It's great to speak to you, mate, and uh, have, a, have a good one. And as I said before, um, keep on keeping on, Matt. Keep on keeping on. Uh, Thank you, Dean. As long as I keep waking up, I'll keep doing it. Absolutely, and we look forward to it, mate. All the best, mate. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, bye.